Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to The Bigger Picture. I'm your host this week, Caleb Franz. This is a podcast where we tell stories that matter. Today, when Americans look at our founding documents, we do so with a sense of reverence and divinity. From our modern perspective, documents like the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are about as close to perfect for governing that ever has or ever had existed in history. But in the 1780s and 90s, this was far from the case. Our governing documents didn't descend from heaven above like the Ten Commandments coming off of Mount Sinai. Rather, they came about after months of fiery debates, personal jabs, and founders waiting for the other one to blink first. No, our Constitution was not divine, and it wasn't a gift given to us by the hand of God. But one can argue that despite months of debate discussion and political grit as we came out with the greatest political achievement known to man that there may have been some divine intervention. While some look at the founding documents as perfect, it's actually their imperfections that highlight just how incredible they truly are. The history of the Virginia Ratifying Convention showcases a struggle that wasn't a polite gathering of founding fathers. Rather, It was an impassioned convention of men with conviction, never compromising on their principles. It is this history we must remember in order to really appreciate the miracle that came out on the other side. That is, the miracle of our Constitution. In the summer of 1788, the sun cooked the residents of Richmond, Virginia. But the heat produced by the sun seemed only secondary to the heated debates that occurred in the Virginia Ratifying Convention. James Madison was working hard on ensuring the Constitution he had authored not go down in flames. But this was no simple task. While Madison wished to secure the passage of a document that would give the government a central seat strong enough to perform its basic functions, The Anti-Federalists wouldn't have none of it. Still gripped with fear of King George, the Anti-Federalists thought this new constitution would do nothing more than usher in a new despot after had just breaking ties with an old one. These founders had not been so quick to forget what power looked like when concentrated in a singular location. The Federalists, on the other hand, feared the threat of multiple state-oriented tyrannies rather than one central despot. Their concern came not from the top down, but from the tyranny of the majority. They didn't want this American experiment to dissolve away into chaos before it really had a chance to begin. Unfortunately for the Federalists, they had two major problems when trying to convince the convention to pass it. 
One was that the original Constitution did not include a Bill of Rights, which further fueled the fears fanned by the Anti-Federalists. The second was Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry had certainly made a name for himself in the early nation. After his famous Liberty or Death speech, he became widely known as an unapologetic defender of liberty, ready to fight whenever he got the scent of tyranny. He could rally a crowd with his impassioned oratory skill like it was a second nature. After serving his state as governor from 1784 to 1786, he set his sights on being an ardent opponent of the U.S. Constitution, attempting to be passed in the summer of 1788. This meant bad news for the Federalists, as Henry would make it so that he does not rest until the new constitution was defeated. Almost as soon as the convention began, Patrick Henry came out swinging and in full force with his oratory ability. On June 5th, 1788, Henry began speaking to the assembly to make his case against the present draft of the constitution. He stated, this constitution is said to have beautiful features, but when I come to examine these features, sir, they appear to me horribly frightful. Among other deformities, it has an awful squinting. It squints toward monarchy. Does not this raise indignation in the breast of every true American? You can almost imagine the kind of emotion that he must have conjured in the bellies of those present. But he continued. Your president may easily become king. Your senate is so imperfectly constructed that your dearest rights may be sacrificed by what may be a small minority. And a very small minority may continue forever unchangeably in this government, although horribly defective. Where are your checks in this government? Your strongholds will be in the hands of your enemies. It is on a supposition that your American governors shall be honest that all the good qualities of this government are founded, but its defective and imperfect construction puts it in their power to perpetrate the worst of mischiefs, should they be bad men. And sir, would not all the world from the eastern to the western hemisphere blame our distracted folly in resting our rights upon the contingency of our rulers being good or bad? Show me that age and country where the rights and liberties of the people were placed on the sole chance of their rulers being good men without consequent loss of liberty. I say that the loss of that dearest privilege has ever followed. With absolute certainty, every such mad attempt. His speeches often went on and on, but even as the assembly grew tired, Henry always made sure he drove his point home. The mistake we often make in reflecting on this history is comparing it to the politics of today. While, yes, both sides had much of the same passion that modern politics may have at times, we have to remember that they both understood liberty was the end goal that they wanted to achieve, with a few exceptions. 
While the anti-federalists, like Henry, saw the greatest threat to liberty in the form of this central government created under the Constitution, the federalists genuinely did not understand the big fuss, especially when it came to the biggest complaint, which was the lack of a Bill of Rights. You see, to the federalists, there was no need to fear an authoritative government because the Constitution they formed was a negative document meaning that only that which was specifically outlined in the Constitution was all that was allowed for the government to do. There was no need for a Bill of Rights, they argued, because they did not give the government the power to abuse those rights. Some even went a step further and opposed a Bill of Rights because it might embolden those rights which may not have been listed to be taken from the government. This concern is what eventually led to the inclusion of the Ninth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. This back and forth over the Bill of Rights became the weakest spot in the Federalists' defense of the new Constitution. And it only made it easier for Patrick Henry to conjure up imagery of tyranny in the minds of the public without the inclusion of it. To the point of the Federalists, this was a somewhat valid excuse over the lack of a Bill of Rights, but also a bit of a naive one at that. It is true that government only had very specific and enumerated powers that it could use, and that was, to their credit, one of the more brilliant parts about it. But, ultimately, this was a major flaw in their philosophy, because it ignored the inherent nature of government to take power whenever and wherever it can get it. This understanding of government's nature was the greatest strength of the anti-federalists, and they certainly used it. And that meant headache for one James Madison. James Madison wasn't necessarily opposed to the idea of a Bill of Rights, unlike many of the other federalists at the time, but he wanted the Constitution to be ratified immediately in order to provide the new nation with a government to perform its basic functions. After the establishment of this government, he wouldn't mind the inclusion of a Bill of Rights to the Constitution. In fact, after the Constitution was ratified, James Madison became one of the key figures in the passage of a Bill of Rights. The Anti-Federalists would not settle for that, however. They didn't even want to consider the possibility of what might happen if the Constitution was ratified without the Bill of Rights. But Madison feared just the opposite. He feared the Anti-Federalists sabotaging the last chance they had to form a country that would eventually be able to protect the rights Henry wanted so dearly to keep safe. Now, James Madison was not the man that Patrick Henry was. While Henry was an extrovert who loved to speak loudly and proudly, stirring all kinds of emotions and imagery in the hearts and the minds of his audience, Madison was, well, just the opposite. He was a short and sickly man who became ill several times during the convention. He did not enjoy the center stage as he was very soft-spoken. He was certainly an intellectual, but struggled when it came to communicating those ideas in the way that only seemed to be second nature to Henry. He was certainly at a disadvantage, but Madison was not about to let Henry dictate the discourse of the Constitution that he himself authored. In a much softer tone than Henry's commanding voice, 
James Madison took to the stage in support of the Constitution. He used much of his time to refute many of the attacks Henry had made. He said, Even if we attend to the manner in which the Constitution is investigated, ratified, and made the act of the people of America, I can say, notwithstanding what the honorable gentleman has alleged, that his government is not completely consolidated, nor is it entirely federal. Who are parties to it? The people. But not the people as composing one body, but the people as composing 13 sovereignties. Were it, as the gentleman, meaning Henry, asserts, a consolidated government, the assent of a majority of the people would be sufficient for its establishment, and, as a majority, have adopted it already. The remaining states would be bound by the act of the majority, even if they unanimously reprobated it. As much debate continued between both sides of the aisle, all throughout the summer of 1788, the Federalists eventually won out in the end. While the Constitution had been signed almost a year earlier on September 17, 1787, it wasn't until the summer of 1788 that it was officially ratified by the Virginia Convention. By the following summer, the new government was up and running with the first Congress and first president sworn in during the spring of 1789. This didn't mean the book was closed, however, and far from it. Patrick Henry was morally opposed to the new form of government and rejected several offers to serve as part of President Washington's cabinet to include Secretary of State and Supreme Court Justice. He did, however, return to Virginia as a member of the House of Delegates and became instrumental in making sure there were anti-federalists elected to the Congress of the government he so opposed. James Madison was just getting started as well. Now that the new government was officially formed, his battle for the inclusion of the Bill of Rights had only just begun. James Madison was one of the unique statesmen that fought for both the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. The fight over the Constitution isn't just one chapter in our story, but a constant struggle filled with victories and losses for liberty. While Madison and Henry did not see eye to eye on the federal constitution, they both understood and wanted to protect liberty at all costs. They just saw different ways to approach it. The least that we can do today is to continue that fight. It is far from a perfect system, but the story of the ratification convention in Virginia of 1788 proves that liberty is something worth fighting for. That is our show this week here on The Bigger Picture. We certainly hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a, a rating and a review. We will certainly love it here at Outset. Uh, please check out all of our other podcasts here on the Outset uh, Network. And be sure to check out The Bigger Picture next week as we go into yet another story. Thanks for listening. <laughs>